Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Content Director here at Word on Fire. And joining us from our newly renovated Santa Barbara studio is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you in this new place. Yeah, hi, Brandon. It's uh, terrific. It's a bigger space for us, and uh, it's wonderful. I've been watching this whole process the last couple of weeks as they set it up, and it's been uh, tremendous to see, but we're, we're ready to go. We'll say more about the new studio yeah. as it continues to be built out over the coming weeks here. But today, we're going to be talking about the problem of guilt by association. We're going to learn how to escape the idea that people are either 100% bad or mm. 100% good. And we're going to look at how Jesus interacted with some of the tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, and critics of his own day. But before we get into that, Bishop, how about an update on uh, a new and exciting thing happening there in Santa Barbara in just a, I guess, a couple weeks here at the time we're recording this, you're going to be welcoming a prestigious guest for another one of your Bishop Barron Presents series. Tell us who it is and what you'll be talking about. Yes, James Lindsay, he wrote this book. Um, it's, it's called Cynical Theories, and he has the, the word critical crossed out and cynical put in its place. And it's about this whole thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is the woke culture, the cancel culture, the intersectionality, all this business that is coming up out of um, critical theory. And so we'll just explore all that. I think it's a really dangerous dynamic in our culture and in our church. And I appreciated his book. I don't think he and I agree on everything. I think he's, he's anti-religious, as far as I can tell. But, but we agree, I think, on a lot of the themes around the woke uh, business. So looking forward to that conversation, which we'll have, I think, here in our new uh, studio space. So we'll be recording that in mid-December, and it should be released shortly thereafter. So I'll be sure to update all the podcast listeners when that's ready to go. All right, Bishop, let's talk about this guilt by association. And in some ways, it ties into what you just discussed regarding James, Lin mm -hmm. James Lindsay's work with the cancel yeah. culture, that there seems to be a growing sentiment both within the church and in the general culture that if you share a public conversation with someone or if you say something nice about one particular aspect of somebody's work, then you're endorsing everything that they've ever created or ever said or every behavior they've ever exhibited. Uh, what's wrong with this basic assumption and why is it so dangerous? Well, there's plenty wrong with it. I mean, one is it's stupid. What I mean by that is simply, you know, if, if I were dialoguing only with people with whom I completely agreed in every detail, I'd be dialoguing with Jesus and his blessed mother. I mean, so everybody under the sun in the ancient world, medieval world, modern world today, everybody is a mix of good and bad. They, they say good things and they say bad things. They do good things, they do bad things. And so it's just wrong-headed, it's just stupid to put people in, in these either-or categories. You know, 100% member of my tribe, they say and do everything right or they're 100% bad. Um, but a second problem is, it's so ungenerous and it's so uncatholic, and maybe we'll talk about that more as we go, but it, the lack of generosity, um, even as I disagree with someone, can I still reach out in a generous spirit to say, well, yeah, but here I do agree with you, and here we have something we can build on. Um, building walls, if you want to use that overused metaphor, but building walls when we have to, but building bridges when we can, you know? And it's both of those moves, I think, are important. And that leads to a third consideration. Is it so evangelically problematic to lock ourselves into these little silos or little tribes? See, 
Catholicism, kataholos, according to the whole, we are not a tribal religion. And that's something that goes right back to the New Testament and the early church fathers. They opposed a tribalistic understanding, a sort of us against them. We're in our little camp. No, the church by its very nature reaches out. Think of the Bernini colonnade, you know, reaching out to the nations. Drawing people into a clear identity, absolutely, but, but in an attitude of, of generosity and, and openness. Um, when we lock ourselves into towers with our fellow believers, and then we shoot arrows out through the little narrow slits in the tower at our enemies, uh, I would suggest that's a very counter-evangelical perspective. If you want to announce the good news, you can't be a tribalist. Rather, you've got to be someone with a spirit generous enough to find points of contact, even with those that you disagree with. Now, I think we'll explore this as we go, but there are so many examples of this from, I would say, Jesus himself, but then up through the great Catholic tradition of how this is done. I see as one of the real dark uh, sides of the scene today is a restoration of a kind of tribalism. And the internet uh, encourages it, and that's, that's a dangerous thing too, which we can maybe talk about some more. But I'd say those, those three things, it's stupid, it's ungenerous, and it's anti-evangelical. Besides that, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Bishop, in your book, Arguing Religion, you made the case that what we need is more sincere, charitable argument about religion and not less. And I think it's clear to anyone today that, especially online, we're seeing the opposite of that. People are being dismissed, arguments are not being engaged. And one of the reasons is this sort of guilt by association. It, to me, it seems like a, a modern form of the ad hominem fallacy that if you can somehow malign a person's character based on the people they like or are friends with or whose work they've endorsed, yeah. then you can ignore their arguments. Do you see that dynamic at play as well? Absolutely. And you know, as you know, I like the word argument, even though it's got kind of a negative overtone. But an argument is something nonviolent. It's a rational move. It's not ad hominem. It's not appealing to someone's character or lack thereof. It's an attempt to find the middle ground between a sort of you know, bland toleration or indifference and hostility. What you see, in fact, on, on the internet, it's not so much bland indifference. You see hostility. It might not be throwing brickbats at people, but it's throwing very aggressive language at people. So the recovery of real argument uh, is a desideratum. Now, with that in mind, look at some of the ways that great arguers in our tradition have operated. I'll think of one right away, Brandon, as I look at you, our you know, mutual hero, G.K. Chesterton, one of the great arguers in the 20th century, you know, someone that really took on the opponents of Christianity, was, a, was a, a joyful warrior for the faith. But what did he do? I mean, he often engaged people who were very hostile to the faith, but in a way that was um, inviting to them making arguments indeed, but not engaging in ad hominem uh, uh, violent attacks. The prime example, of course, being his outreach to George Bernard Shaw, the famous Irish playwright, who was a notorious atheist, a socialist, would have disagreed with Chesterton on, on a range of political, economic, and above all, religious matters. But yet Chesterton went all through the English countryside debating with uh, George Bernard Shaw, and indeed after the debates, going to a, a pub where they would share an evening of frivolity together. Um, 
There were people indeed at the time who found that rather scandalous. How could this great apologist for the Catholic faith be spending so much positive time with this notorious atheist, even, even you know, uh, eating and drinking with him? Well, there, a precedent does come to mind, of course. Jesus himself eating and drinking with those that, that he uh, would have been at odds with in terms of their moral life and so on and so forth. But I think that's the model that we should be looking for. Chesterton, as I say, had no ambiguity in his own mind about who was right and who was wrong. I mean, he wasn't uh, accepting some kind of easygoing toleration. He wasn't saying, hey, George Bernard Shaw, you know, you got your point of view, I got mine. No way. I mean, he was a vibrant arguer. But at the same time, he by no means subscribed to the view that because Shaw is wrong about some very important things, I'll have nothing to do with him. On the contrary. And in fact, what's the book, Brandon, you would know, of, of Shaw's that Chesterton famously endorsed? It was like one of his historical studies or it was a biographical study. And I think in the endorsement, he said something like, well, you know, we, we disagree about a number of things, but, but here he does this very well. To me, that's a model of how to do it. You know, one thing you see in Chesterton modeled as you're describing his relationship with Shaw is this ability to nuance people and ideas. Yeah. You see it too in Thomas Aquinas. Thomas didn't just lump people into 100% good or 100% bad. You know, he engaged pagan writers, Jewish writers, Islamic writers, and he found the kernels of truth that he could get on board with while still being hesitant and skeptical about some of their other ideas. What do we need to recover that sense of nuance today? Because, I, I, again, I find it increasing that people are just taking the easy way out to lump people into they're 100% bad, don't want to engage with them, anyone who touches them is unclean, and 100% good, these people are above any criticism whatsoever. How do we recover nuance well, I mean, first of all, you're right that Aquinas, so long before Chesterton, uh, is maybe the greatest model of this uh, style. As you suggest, um, whether it's Aristotle, a pagan scientist, it's Plato, a pagan mystical philosopher, it's Cicero, a, a Roman a jurist, it's Moses Maimonides, a Jewish rabbi, it's Avicenna, Avicebron, uh, Averroes, Islamic uh, scholars, Origen a Christian writer that is heretical in certain ways. I mean, with all of these people, Aquinas establishes a real dialogue. Disagreeing when he feels it's important to do so, yes, indeed. I can, every one of those people I just mentioned, Thomas would disagree with. At the same time, he treats all of them with great respect and often finds, as you say, uh, truths in their writing. Now, did he take on criticism because of that? You bet. You bet. Go back to the 13th century. There were a lot of people that said to Thomas Aquinas, why are you using the writings of Aristotle, who's wrong about God, he's wrong about the eternity of the world, he's wrong about uh, the immortality of the soul, all kinds of really central issues, by the way. Not little... Uh, uh, you know, mild problems along the edge. But people said, look, Aristotle is wrong as he can be about some central ideas, and yet you, Thomas Aquinas, are making him key to your own reflection. Well, Thomas said, yes, but he's right in so many other important ways, and that can help us in the conversation between the culture and the faith. Same with Cicero, same with Averroes, same with Avicenna. How could you be using, as Thomas does, for example, in his high metaphysical writings, uses a lot of Averroes, including the essence-existence distinction, which is key to his thought, from an Islamic scholar, from an infidel? And again, trust me, there were a lot of people in the 13th century who complained precisely along those lines. But see, Aquinas had that, I would say, much more generous and Catholic spirit 
of finding the truth wherever he could. Did it work? Yeah, in this case, it will help us dialogue with the culture. Good. Well, then, you know, use it. That's the tradition that I unapologetically stand in. And I'm against, as I say, forms of tribalism. Now, to the second part of your question, why is that happening today? I think the internet has a lot to do with it. The internet, especially with the clickbait sort of uh, culture, encourages precisely this sort of tribalistic, us against them, I'm right, you're wrong style. Thomas Aquinas came of age at the University of Paris, 13th century, where a highly sophisticated, nuanced form of public debate held sway, right? Where here's the question, here are a number of objections, here's the way to respond to the objections, here's the resolution of the problem. All the time listening, responding, distinguishing, nuancing, we're a long way from that. Unfortunately, that's part of the problem. We're a long way from that culture that allowed a greater generosity and Catholicity to obtain. The clickbait world, nope, you're wrong. Nope, oh, you're wrong about this. You're a terrible person. I put you in, in the negative camp, and now I and my followers will, will, will hunker down in our tower. We're going to shoot arrows out of the... That's inimical to a Catholic approach to the intellectual life, and, as I said, it is evangelically counterindicated. So I get how it flourishes in, in the Internet culture, but that's a terrible thing. And, and we Catholics especially should be very wary of that approach. Let's continue that thread of the evangelical effects of this guilt by association phenomenon, because uh, that, that's what most uh, concerns me, both as a Christian in general, but as a you know Catholic evangelist, I noticed over the last couple of years, especially Bishop, you've been criticized by people on virtually every side of the church and the culture for the types of people with whom you engage. And just to give a few examples, um, you've talked with people on the so-called cultural right. So these would include people like Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson. You offered a, a reflection for the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, which is mm -hmm. sponsored by a conservative group. And then on the so-called cultural left, you've done interviews with America Magazine. You've you know, given talks at Facebook and, and Google who are not conservative bastions. And then you've also engaged with a number of non-Catholics whose lifestyles are at odds with church teaching. So I'm thinking here of Dave Rubin, with whom mm -hmm. you've shared, I think, three dialogues now. You've done the Reddit Q&As with all yeah. sorts of young people who have all sorts of nasty disagreements with the church. And then you've got a couple of uh, upcoming dialogues with various atheists, including James Lindsay, whom we just mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Why have you decided to pursue these conversations and opportunities despite being fully aware that in every case, people are going to criticize you for it, slam you for it, get mad that you're associating with bad people? Yeah, first of all, that's true. I mean, so over the years, I've gotten <laughs> brickbats from both sides of the uh, ecclesial and political spectrum. The left has gone after me. The right has gone after me. Uh, so in a way, I, I, I guess I wear that as a badge of honor. I, I think that shows I'm, I'm interested in, in the truth and not getting identified with a particular political camp. So if the goal is to be 100% with a particular ideological perspective, then you're not interested in truth or evangelicalism. You're interested in tribalism. I'm not interested in tribalism. I'm interested in um, reaching souls. And so as Paul says, I'll be all things to all men. I mean, if that works, 
Now, within the limits of law and morality, I'm not, I'm not advocating some wild-eyed op openness to anything. What I'm saying is use what you can evangelically to reach whom you can. So if there are people on the left um, and they're willing to engage me, they're willing to have me in their world, and even though I'm in dramatic disagreement, as I often am, I think of going to like Google and Facebook headquarters. I think, Brandon, you were there both times, huh? And we go into the, like, the lobbies of some of these headquarters and up on the wall are, are you know, adages and that, that are very much at odds with my own you know, point of view on a lot of moral issues. Okay, but they're giving me a platform. They're allowing me to engage in, in dialogue. I can say what I want to say. And what did I do in, in those cases? I took something that was a great value in the kind of Google, Facebook world. I forget which one it was now, but the, the quest, I think it must have been Google, huh? the, the search, you know, the search for the truth. And my argument there was religion doesn't close down the mind, it opens up the mind. Um, was Facebook was how to have a religious argument, wasn't it? I kind of forget now, but the point was, I wanted to move into that space with which I was not in by any means complete agreement, but to find a point of contact so that I could evangelize whom I might. Now, go to the other side. I sit down, for example, with, uh, with Ben Shapiro. Um, ben Shapiro, political uh, conservative, uh, a very uh, uh, devoutly believing Orthodox Jew. Um, there were people on the, on the right, in the Catholic right, that were saying, but why didn't you just, just correct him? Just tell him he's wrong. Tell him he's going to hell unless he changes his religious point of view. Well, I mean, how effective, be honest now, how evangelically effective do you think that strategy would have been? If I sat down face-to-face -face with a devoutly believing Jewish man and just said, look, unless you change, you are going into a place of eternal torment. Do you really think, now again, you're not playing to your peanut gallery, not playing to your fellow, that that would be evangelically effective. Now, watch that interview with Shapiro, and you'll see I was evangelizing him, but I was doing it in a way, I think, that would be much more appealing to someone of a profoundly Jewish background. I was using the very Jewishness of Jesus, the very Jewishness of the New Testament, to try to show what Jesus means for Christians as the Messiah of Israel. I was evangelizing him, but to do it in this sort of browbeating uh, way, I think it's completely counterindicated. Again, what I tried to do there was move into his world. As I moved into the Google and Facebook world and tried to find a point of contact, I moved into his world to try to find some place where we might agree and upon which I could build. Uh, you know, say what you want, but I think that's a far better and more effective evangelical strategy. And maybe one last point. I think that a lot of people on the internet, especially, who are interested above all in winning an argument and getting the cheers of their peanut gallery. Well, if, okay, if that's your game, then, I mean, winning the argument, uh, showing, showing your opponent, man, you're wrong and I'm right and now I got all my friends cheering for me. Well, that's one way to play the game, but that is not the evangelical way to play the game because the evangelist is not interested primarily in winning arguments. He might use an argument as a tool what he's interested in is winning a soul. And I'd say to some of my critics on the right, again, you really think a good way to win a soul for Christ is directly threaten them with eternal damnation unless they change. 
Yeah, is there room for talking about heaven, hell, and last judgment? Yeah, of course there is. But honestly, honestly, you think that's the moment? You think that's the right strategy at that moment? Or is it better to find a point of contact upon which you can build, you know? That's what I've um, wagered. Let's turn the conversation now back to Jesus. You kind of hinted earlier mm -hmm. at how Jesus faced some of these criticisms when he walked the earth, that he was hanging out with the wrong people, dining with tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. Talk about this guilt by association dynamic in Jesus's time, how he reacted to it and how he superseded it. Yeah, well, it's true, isn't it? I mean, he withstood a lot of criticism for the people that he hung around with. How could you you're a rabbi, you're a great teacher, you're a man of God. How could you be hanging out with prostitutes, tax collectors? Now, again, uh, especially with regard to tax collectors, we can miss the, the point of it. In, in Jesus' time and place, I mean, to be a tax collector was to be a pretty nefarious person. Think of someone that we'd find today like really morally repugnant, like a, maybe a, a gangster or a, you know, a, a hired assassin or something, someone that's really morally repugnant. That's how they would have seen a tax collector. Jesus eats and drinks, not only associates, he, he socializes with notorious sinners. Now, with that in mind, go back through any of the four Gospels, and you'll find the same kind of critics in his day that you'll find today. How could you possibly be doing this? Um, why was Jesus doing it? I would say because he was interested not primarily in winning arguments. He was interested in winning souls. So he moved into the world of saints and sinners in an inviting way. Think even of his, um, of his dinner with Simon the Pharisee. What doesn't he do? with this man who is self-righteous and is, is not in a good spiritual space. He doesn't come in and tear the whole room apart, right? No, he comes, he's invited, sits down at dinner, enjoys the dinner with him. In the course of that dinner, he indeed challenges Simon, the Pharisee, but in a way that was engaging and inviting him to change. Or the woman at the well, one of the great examples of Jesus' pastoral strategy. Does he, in point of fact, question the morality of the woman at the well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, you've had five husbands, and the, and the one you're with now is not your husband. I mean, that's a pretty in-your-face moral challenge. But what doesn't Jesus do there? He doesn't come bursting onto the scene, tearing everything upside down, uh, um, uh, uh, pronouncing judgment on the woman. But his opening move is to sit down where she is, Give me a drink. That's how he begins, right? Eliciting from her a gesture of, of generosity. And the conversation, in a very um, winning way, unfolds. Now, he gets to moral correction indeed. But where does he end up? He ends up with a saved soul ready to evangelize. Um, think of Jesus and Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus, who's a... Uh, Chief tax collector, we hear in the Gospels. Tax collector, bad enough. But he's an archie. He's a chief tax collector. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm staying at your house today. He doesn't begin with moral condemnation. He begins with invitation. Leading Zacchaeus, mind you, on his own to confess his sin and to announce that he's changing his life. 
Good, good. How about Matthew, the tax collector? Matthew, come, follow me. And that night, Jesus sits down at a dinner to which a lot of Matthew's fellow tax collectors were drawn. Might I suggest that's a far more effective evangelical strategy if you're interested in winning souls and not just winning arguments. Um, I know a lot of people on the hard right will often use the image of Jesus in the temple. Yeah, there is that Jesus. I'm with Chesterton, you know, that in the front of every church there should be a statue of the gentle Jesus and of the ferocious Jesus. True. Sometimes I think that kind of approach is called for. Sure, I agree with that. But is that all he ever does? Is that even what he typically does? I would say no to both of those. Um, you know, so again, I, the master question is, what are you trying to do? If you're trying to, frankly, show off and win arguments and appeal to your own uh, cheering section, okay, you'll do it in a certain way. If you're really interested in souls, I would suggest you do it a different way. One thing you've said over the years, Bishop, is that if somebody invites me to give a talk or to engage in a dialogue, somebody with a sizable platform, and they don't censor me in any way, I'd be open to it. And so you kind of have a standing uh, invitation to any big group or big platform that would make you an offer. But I'm guessing for you, as for most evangelists, there, there'd be some place where you would draw the line. I'm sure. guessing, say, if Planned Parenthood called you to right. speak at a, at a rally, you wouldn't do that. So give some advice here for evangelists wondering, where do I draw the line between evangelical openness and not contributing to scandal? Yeah, and I agree with that. And you're right. There, there are clear limits. Here, here's the difficulty. Some are super clear, like you say, so the Nazi party invites you to give a talk. Well, no, you're not going to go to that or Planned Parenthood. Someone who is advocating and performing acts that are, you know, intrinsically evil, et cetera. No, you're not going to in any way cooperate with such a group. Um, those are real clear. Uh, others are real clear on the other side. You know, things are people that are completely supportive of, of the Catholic Church in every way. Well, yeah, of course. The difficulty is that between those two extremes, there's kind of this large gray area. And I've been arguing, you know, I stay with it, that, that your basic attitude should be one of greater generosity and greater openness. Um, might there be prudential judgments at play sometimes? Like people of goodwill might disagree. Someone would say, no, I, I think it's okay to address this group because I can really work with them. Others say, no, no, that group's gone too far. Yeah, I can see people of goodwill perhaps disagreeing. I'll give you an example now that I'm, you know, I'm an auxiliary bishop in Los Angeles, which I never imagined would happen. But years ago, um, I was invited to give the keynote address at the famous Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. Well, it's one of the biggest events in the Catholic world. You know, I mean, 40,000 people come to that. And, um, and I, I decided that I would do it. In fact, I gave the keynote twice at the Congress. Well, there were people uh, at that time who were very critical of me. How could you even go to this place where they have all kinds of speakers that, you know, say things that are strange and out of step with the church? Okay, I made the prudential judgment that I still thought it was better for me to go into that environment. And it, in neither, never have they censored a word that I've said. Never have they told me what to speak on or what not to speak on. And I, I made and continue to make. I still speak at it now that I'm out here, of course. But um, all right, I made that prudential judgment. Could I respect someone of goodwill saying, no, I, there are too many speakers there that I just disagree with that I'm not going to do it? 
Yeah, I, I can see myself saying, all right, I understand you've come to a different prudential judgment. So to your point, I think there are clear extremes, you know, that, that are not controversial. Then there's a large area in between where there can be, I think, some legitimate uh, disagreement. But again, my position is err on the side of generosity because I'm an evangelist. I want to go out to the world. I want to, and again, people think, Google, are you serious? How could you possibly appear at Google headquarters or Facebook? They're terrible people at Facebook. Or turn it around, National Catholic Prayer Breakfast. How could you possibly appear there? So I get that, but I would want to err on the side of, call it evangelical generosity, as I do my work. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to discuss this topic more, I encourage you to join the Word on Fire Institute. Not only will you get access to all sorts of great courses and films, you'll get the quarterly evangelization and culture journal in the mail, but you'll also have access to these amazing discussion forums where we have thousands and thousands of smart, uh, generous, evangelically motivated Catholics who like to talk about things just like this. So if you have some follow-up questions or you want to dialogue with other Catholics about this issue, sign up for the Word on Fire Institute. You can do so at the website, wordonfire.institute. Well, thanks so much for listening and watching. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show. 